The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio, one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. <laughs> Hi folks, welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick here to talk about a, a topic near and dear to my heart tonight. And we got a great guest on, uh, going to talk about the Ravens defensive coordinators with Dev Panchwa. Dev, how you doing, buddy? I am fantastic, Ken. Uh, this is one of our sweet spot passion uh, topics <laughs> Uh, us nerding out on Ravens history and, and Ravens defense. So I can't, uh, I appreciate you having me on actually. It's going to be a lot of fun. There's, there's literally no one else I can think of who's been around for the entire tenure of the Ravens. Because a lot of, you know, people, they joined in 2012 or 2014 or they, you know, they were five when the Ravens uh, started out. And, you know, it's a, it's more of us older guard who have been around for a while. And, and uh, you know, I knew you from way back when uh, that, that have seen the whole history unfold in front of us. And there's and there's a lot to talk about by uh, by defensive coordinator. Let's talk about first, though, where, where can people find you on Twitter? Yeah, people can find me at Dev Panchwa on Twitter. Uh, talk about a wide variety of things. And then uh, they can also find my work on Russell Street Report. So um, that's good stuff out there recently. And, and uh, yeah, so just um, message me anytime if you want to talk about defense or, or Ravens history or anything, really. All right. Outstanding, Dev. Always always good reads. You used to do the battle plans for years. Are you still doing that or are you is, uh, is somebody else got that now? I haven't done it for a couple of seasons now. Uh, kind of pulled back but uh last season i did a reflections piece which ran every 
few weeks based, uh, talking through kind of um, what I saw in, in each of the games. So it was almost a reverse piece, actually, mm-hmm. uh, whereas Battle Plans looked, at, looked ahead at the game plan. and uh, But lately I've been focusing on some, some uh, spot, I guess, feature pieces on, on specific topics uh, and had the chance to actually work with James Ogden and, and Michael Crawford on um, on a collaboration where we talked about Lamar, Lamar Jackson. We've been, been doing some roundtables, which has been a lot of fun. And sometimes you get the chance to unpack a pretty, uh, you get to unpack more just like we're doing right now. Like the, this defensive discussion thing would be really fun. All right. Well, let's jump into it here. We're going to talk about the Ravens, uh, all seven of their defensive coordinators in 25 seasons. That's a good number. They haven't, they, they've kept their guys as long as they could. In most cases, they left for bigger and better things. Still interesting that I don't believe any Ravens defensive coordinator has ever been fired. Uh, Dean Pease left kind of a little bit of a stigma, but uh, yeah, Madison, I believe, resigned to go back to Michigan and coach there. So uh, I still believe that none of them have been uh, been actually fired. They all moved on to better jobs. It's interesting how those two situations unfolded, though. It was uh, the closest I can think of as... Maybe there's a wink, wink, or some sort of conversation that was had. Like, hey, maybe you know, for Greg Madison especially, going to Michigan's a good deal. Go there and part of that staff and take less pressure on uh, as he kind of took on naturally as a defensive coordinator in the NFL. Yeah, I'd, uh, we will never know really in the case of him or of Pease. But let's start at the beginning with Marvin Lewis and uh, and really talk about him. And Marvin Lewis is a strange animal in terms of his career as a defensive coordinator really evolved through a number of stages. So he came he came uh, to the '96 Ravens as a defensive coordinator, and uh, Ray Lewis was in his first season. The Ravens were decimated by injuries on defense that year. In fact, they shifted from a 4-3 base to a 3-4 base due to a uh, you know a number of injuries that had happened on the defensive line. They just couldn't field a 4-3 anymore uh, in that first season. Ray Lewis, a two-down linebacker, didn't yet have the green dot. Uh, that was that was uh, Eric uh, Turner in 1996. He didn't take it over until 97. Uh, the other thing about about that 96 defense that really got me was the amount of quarter package they played 116 snaps that with benny thompson the special teams age coming in to replace ray lewis on defense yeah that's pretty remarkable <laughs> i i think um and that's a nice nugget and i didn't uh, thinking back to it um of all things i think that was a precursor probably to marvin's sensibilities though as a defensive coordinator wanting that um almost that's the chess piece to have a, a guy like a benny thompson at that point somebody with some speed somebody that could get lateral agility a little bit better on the field and then the one thing the interesting thing about for for ravens fans that are new newer um think back to eric turner and ray lewis has talked about this that was uh, a moment for him he realized i you know i need to take that from eric turner not in a bad way not in a negative way but it was almost like i think the rock and wrestling says something about it's time to take the brass ring that was kind of like ray lewis is like take the brass ring from Eric Turner and the passing of the torch. So that was, that wasn't uh, in that year to your point, but I think it was coming, mm-hmm. uh, which was a cool part. And Turner was a hell of a player. Yeah. 
He still holds an, holds a Ravens record that most everybody would guess is Ed Reed, but he had interceptions in five straight games at one point, which is uh, still the record after all these years. Um, uh, that 96 defense, of course, had a lot of problems. Uh, the, the, the Ravens offense that year uh, was really a great, almost unstoppable, no huddle offense, but they really couldn't do it very much because the defense couldn't hold up to being back on the field oh my God. series <laughs> after series. So. It was, um, it's funny, Ken. I think there was a point, <laughs> this was on Twitter, and there was a conversation about the Falcons. I, I think, or I can't remember. No, that was what it was. It was, it was a discussion about this team, specifically, like the 96 team. And I chimed in uh, because somebody wanted my input in terms of history. And I'm like, just imagine being a Falcons fan like today. That's what you had with this team because they would blow every single big lead. And it, it was... Or small lead. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was... Yeah. It was fun in a sense, uh, forty you know point games, but yeah, to your point, it was it was so uh, frustrating, uh, and I, I know that uh, Ray Ray in particular, um, he had to go through his lumps when he started out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we're not going to talk about all the years individually. Ninety seven and ninety eight blend together a little bit for me. I mean, the defense improved. In those years, 97 was the year of drafting Boulware and Sharper, so that that, that linebacking crew was incredibly young, and they kind of matured together. Uh, still not great years in either of those, honestly. The acquisition of McCrary and Siragusa uh, returned the Ravens to a 4-3 with a lot of investment there. Uh, that was really the start of an incredible run of free agents for the Ravens in general. I mean, we, we, don't, we think of that team as being homegrown. There are a lot of defensive draft picks in particular that, that were high, but uh, Ozzy's record of of signing free agents that era was just incredible. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then before we joined, I was thinking back to that. And if you, the foundation actually of the defense and the, I think more of the credibility really being established was Michael McCrary, that signing. Saragusa as well. I just remember distinctly in free agency that at that point, how important it was to sign McCrary. And I forget, they signed another, or I think they're pursuing another free agent um, at that time, and they didn't end up signing him, and I can't remember who it was. But <laughs> point is, McCrary decided to come, and um, it changed everything, I think. It, it really did, because he was like the first. It wasn't the, the landmark. He wasn't like Reggie White or something. Mm-hmm. He was a mid-tier guy that had talent and seemed to be on the upswing, and all of a sudden, that changed it all, and I think they got they were credibility and reputationally better and it turned into a, a place, a good spot for veterans to go to. Uh, and I don't know if, I think part of that is Ozzy's brilliance as a pitch man too. Uh, probably. Yeah. I mean, they, they were, they were, they had not yet, I don't believe built the castle at that point that was coming in about 2000. It was, yeah. Like, yeah. Um, so, uh, so they didn't quite have that as a recruiting inducement yet. That eventually became very powerful. Uh, but go, getting back to Marvin here, um, the tendencies to use stunts and twists really showed up in the 97 and 98 score sheets more. 96, they just they couldn't, there wasn't a lot of flexibility to, to you know, play games with, with that unit. The 97, 98 teams stunted an unbelievable amount. I remember there's an X's and O's football game that I played when I was younger that, that had double twist willy the play in it and it's a it's a, a, a tackle and stun on both sides basically uh, and yeah. th- this is uh they did a ton of that not necessarily that play but a lot of stunts and twists 
if, if you were asked who was the Raven in history who stunted more than any other on a per play basis, at least, who would you guess? You know, you see I, the answer in front of you. Head, I, I was I, in my head. I'm logically thinking Burnett has got to mm. be up there, but yeah, it's it's. And when I talk about about the stunting player, the way I recorded my score sheet, who's who's the over, not who's the the pick man, because that that yeah, you, okay, you, you could get other people's foot, but the uh, the uh, the heaviest stunter in Ravens history, James Jones. Yeah. So he was a, he was a, uh, he had 11 and a half sacks in 97 and 98 combined. Let's just think about what that would mean today. If we all of a sudden had an interior defensive lineman with 11 and a half sacks over a two year period, even <laughs> we'd be pretty excited. Oh, that's a, that's a great name from the back in the day. Another player that um, was really, really good. And I know he moved on to think it was Detroit, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that's a great, I mean, that's a guy that didn't uh, stick for their, you know, ascent the mountaintop but yeah he was a very uh, integral piece of that rotation so uh yeah that's a good call out i, I do remember him being very very good i don't i didn't remember being that good but yeah <laughs> still that's impressive they, uh, they really abused him in terms of the number of snaps they had him play the the, the the current ravens are much more rotational about what they did uh in the in the early lewis era and some of it is they didn't have enough players to to you know, active for each game based on some of the injuries. Uh, but Jones in particular in that, in that Rams game in 96 played, it was either 90 or 91 snaps. I believe he might've missed one. And, and for a defensive lineman to do that, it's just, it's absurd. So yeah, it. no, for sure. Uh, well, one quick thing just real, uh, just sparked my thought though. I think that final game against Detroit in 98, where they, where they, I think started. They basically formed their identity of who they would become against the run, and uh, they, they, you know, they ended up holding Barry Sanders uh, to forty yards rushing and kept him under fifteen hundred yards. And then that was his final game in his career. And it was, it came up uh, the other day. I think just organically on Twitter. Like, remember this happened? And it's just thinking back, I think that game. And it also, I know that they played the Vikings that year, and that also got yes. little attention. So there were some foundational elements defensively that people uh, could see. And so I think the 98 season was important for that. Well. Yeah, absolutely. And then 99, uh, you know, a lot of this youth is finally coming together. And it's not just the big guys you know, the three linebackers, it's Starks and McAllister, you know, a couple of consecutive number 10 overall picks at corner. Um, Starks developed very quickly as a rookie. Uh, McAllister developed even quicker with an interception, I think, on his fourth NFL play. But he was, you know, out there and and uh, and doing things right away. And I, I in watching the 99 games, the big thing they were talking about is how they have three great corners with Deron Jenkins. How are they going to get one off the field? You know, and so <laughs> they ended up uh, making that call pretty quickly. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a, that's a good point, though. I mean, Deron Jenkins was, was a talented guy, second round pick. So, uh, it, but the, the the cool thing, and I know you, you you talked about this or you brought this up as a precursor, but the the Marvin's tendency to lean more on those those heavier, um, uh, the, the, the leaning more on the secondary, really, but more mm -hmm. like having numbers in those sub packages. 
Yeah, um, absolutely. That, was a big that, thing. that really peaked out in 2000. But the, the uh, just a couple more things about the 99 team before we jump to that, because the 2000s discussion is a fun one in itself. The 99 team allowed only 4.1 yards per play, lowest in team history. Uh, they had that first shutout in franchise history against Cincinnati late in the year, 22-0. Great run that to me established the 2000 Ravens at the end of 99, where they beat Cincinnati, the Saints, Pittsburgh, and the Tennessee Titans who would go on to lose the Super Bowl by a yard. Yeah. They routed the Titans that year. That was the mm-hmm. second game. And now they were the hottest team. You could argue they're the hottest team to, to end the year and, and, and just missed the playoffs in a, in a sense. And I remember uh, that, that was back in the days of uh, primetime NFL primetime and Chris Berman was, all over the, the Ravens kept talking about they're coming, they're coming, you know, like the, this team's arriving. So, you know, him and Tom Jackson, they, they just loved that defense. Well, if you look back to the beginning of that year, they started with the water Buffalo quarterback and he went 0-2. Yeah. And admittedly, they, they started at St. Louis, who nobody thought was a good team, but that ended up being a hell of a football team that won the Super Bowl. And uh, then they went to the Stone Age, Stone, Stony Case was absolutely terrible. The two and two record that he had is, an, is a complete lie. He was he was utterly horrible, and uh, and they finished the year with Tony Banks, who was very good, mm-hmm. and uh, and actually was a was a hell of a quarterback in uh, in, in nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, yeah. definitely. You know, that was a, a bright spot. I, I just recall, and, and it was back in those times too when when Tony Banks was a guy that everybody knew had talent. It wasn't like they picked They did pick him up. It was back in the trashy. The, the whole Billick offense was, you know, dubbed the trashy players or trashy offense. But Banks was the one uh, out of that group that had legit talent, had a fumbling issue mm-hmm. uh, coming from the Rams. And I think um, it was a reclamation project that similar, like a Ryan Tannehill today, like to me, like kind of maybe Ryan Tannehill was more established, had more, um, he proved he had more proven production, but regardless, it was um, it was uh, I think a bright spot like for some hope that, that this guy could actually turn into a really good quarterback. Right, and exciting certainly uh, uh, that they went into two thousand. One of the things that was true in ninety nine of Lewis is that he was a base or dime guy, and we've had a couple different variations of this. The base or dime, what I mean is that they rarely go to the nickel. Um, even when you would normally consider yourself forced, they might go to the dime instead. Relatively small sliver of nickel snaps in there. And Mike Nolan was very similar. We'll get to him in a minute. But but Lewis, particularly in 99, was a, was a big base or dime guy. Four or six defensive backs, you don't go in between. And it's interesting what he became in 2000 because obviously 2000 a magical season it's it's a season a lot of ravens fans remember as their first good memories of the team even though there's there was some good memories from the 90s but uh 2000 everything changed everything worked a 4-3 defense that was absolutely dominant and certainly the, the starting 11 their names are still all known today but the thing that I find interesting is that's the fifth, sixth, and seventh defensive backs who played some of the highest leverage snaps of the year who are largely forgotten today. Yeah, you, we, we Bailey, Trap, Corey Harris, um, they were planning Starks, McAllister, but they didn't, they didn't do the substitutions as much as um, we see with Wink, right? Like this was more, those guys all played together. And I think, yeah, I think 
part of it was Ray that, that really enabled them to do that because if you think about it, it's kind of revolutionary. He had this inside linebacker that you entrusted to cover the entire field, sideline to sideline. He wasn't, uh, I mean, they didn't use, I don't think, Sharper as often in that role. That's correct. To, to play along with them. So th- this is like, I think, groundbreaking stuff. And that made it easier for, for Marvin to, to use all of these defensive backs at once. And uh, one, one other thing I would point out, too, is um, rotationally in the front, I think they used eight, nine guys. They had Larry, uh, Larry Webster was on suspension, ended up coming back that year. They had Jelly, they had Lionel Dalton, they had Martin Chase, uh, they had Keith Washington. So these guys all like aren't household names necessarily, but they were all integral to having this heavy, heavy defensive front rotation that was just he had not, he had waves of defenders in the back end and on the front end. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And that the 2001 defensive line in particular is one of the deepest in NFL history because it had all the, the the basic four of the 2000 group, but had a Dallas Thomas. And yes. he'd only played about 10 snaps, but he, he started his off as a defensive tackle or, you know, maybe a five tech from Ozzy's perspective as to where he would have ended up. Yep. And and uh, but but, you know, really. Could have been used as a three that year. Some, I mean, uh, the the thing about the two thousand Ravens. So uh, Kelly Gregg was a situational pass rusher in two thousand one. You know, they had uh, still Dalton, and there's one other that I'm forgetting that they had. But they really had eight defensive linemen getting a significant. It's Webster. Yeah, Webster was the guy. Webster played a lot more in that year. He did. Yeah. So so it was a, a embarrassment of riches in terms of the talent mm-hmm. they had and. and um, Webster's a guy that could have started on most of the teams, half the yeah. team, something like that in the league. Yeah, definitely a, a, an exciting player. The, the, you you talked about Ray being the the, the thing and the, the the player who made a lot of these heavy DB packages work. So unusual, it just doesn't happen today. They didn't play a four zero seven quarter, which is a kind of a more normal situation where you take all your inside linebackers out of the game. Right. You have four linemen or four guys who are designated as pass rushers, clearly in the play, and you have seven defensive backs behind them. And that's kind of what the Ravens would do today to try and get seven right. DBs or even six on the field. But the but with um, uh, the Ray thing, they're playing a thirty one dime. They only had three guys lining up in as fixed pieces at the line of scrimmage with Rob Burnett kicking inside to play a slant nose to to really oddball kind of look to the formation. Uh, and then Ray had a kind of a roving ability to rush the passer from multiple uh, spots. And they would also, of course, do what Wink does today, which is rush some of those defensive backs at will as well. Yeah, and I think uh, part of it was interesting too is um, they, they they've had that thing. Obviously, they had the best run defense in history, but they did a lot of this with those guys on the field. It wasn't um, from what I remember when they would even be in their sub packages or, or those sub packages didn't have to come out on third and long. I mean, I think they played a good amount of that uh, in in between situations too. So and they were like James Trapp could play the run. Robert Bailey could those guys were hitters. They they just they were thumpers. They they would come up and hit you. And that was the cool part as well. Yeah, there was a lot less forced nickel in that day because there just wasn't as there wasn't as much eleven personnel in the whole league. People yeah. hadn't figured out yet that they really wanted to run out of eleven to spread the defense out to do it. So there wasn't as much forced nickel. So the, so the uh, they played a lot of that quarter package. They played on third and four 
third and five. And that really was revolutionary that people thought, hey, you know, you need bigger players on the field to defend against the possibility of running for a first down. And if you had, you know, Lamar Jackson and John Harbaugh on the other side making decisions about going for it on two plays at that point, maybe they'd have been right. But when you have Vinny Testaverde as, you know, one of the opposing quarterbacks you're facing and that's a, it's a, it's a, it's yeah. a great choice. That is no, that's a good point too. So it was a different day that made it easier, I think, to stay in some of these packages. And, and Marvin was a step ahead. That was pretty clear too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, he, he, you know, all defensive coordinators will say this: that you build your defense to 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 fit your players and not the other way around. You don't fit your players as square pegs into these in these different defenses. And, and Marvin, really, more than any Ravens defensive coordinator, I think that's very clear the way it was done. That 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 he looked around, and said, "Here's here's the assets I've got. I'm going to figure out the best way to use them." Peas would be to me the second most in that category of uh, of, of really doing that. We'll, we'll we'll talk about some more of this as we go. So, 2001 was Marvin's final season. And the big change for 2001, you mentioned Jamie Sharper, is that they used him in this new 32-dime package. So they got away from a 4-1-dime, which is the most common, so prevalent in the, in the NFL today. You only have one inside linebacker on the field. Your second inside linebacker is a dime back, a weak side linebacker. And then you have four guys at the line of scrimmage. But, but this team, they, they broke the rules and went to a 32-dime. The only other team I've really heard of doing that is Dallas. Gotcha, yeah. Uh, and then the, you said the three it was a slanted Burnett on the slant. I think um, was it no? It was McCrary. Was it McCrary that got hurt? One of those two guys got hurt. Yeah. So that affected some of the. And I know Bulwer ended up getting the getting the snaps at defensive ends. So I think I might have had it mixed up in terms of who got hurt. But um, that yeah, like they they uh, they did you know again Marvin was able to adjust, and I think that was um, a, and seeing Sharper get more responsibility. Um, he was he was really showing himself to, in the playoff run the year, uh, year prior, obviously during the 2000 playoff. Yeah. He was able to make an impact in the passing game against the Giants, against the Raiders. He had mm-hmm. that pick against the Raiders. So maybe that maybe that lended to him getting more responsibilities in in passing situations. Yeah, I, I think there's no doubt about it. He also going down the stretch in that weird game in Arizona that they were still in hopes of winning the division. It was probably not going to happen, but they but they went to Arizona and he had a huge interception to put that game away when it was only thirteen seven. Yeah, uh, so, I remember so, that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a it was a big pick. He's uh, he's a much more talented player than we remember him. A lot of people who saw the early sharper years really think of him as a two down thumper exclusively, and he he was really a lot more than that by the time he left the Ravens. And I think what he, what he really did well, Ken, was uh, he understood his assignment. He, he had the, the best tech, proper zone, proper drop technique. Mm-hmm. So whatever he might have lacked in terms of physical foot speed, again, this is going back in those days. Though, so like mm-hmm. we're, we're going back to the right before uh, LeVon Kirkland, like who was a 280-pound inside linebacker. So teams did more of that, and they would take some chances with those guys in coverage. But I think Sharper still had like, relatively decent you know agility lateral quickness that being said yeah i think part of he was crafty he was smart he was in the right spot he was uh he did those things so well that it 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 short uh, i think covered up any uh physical limitation yeah yeah uh, sad to see him go very classy dude put a full page ad in the paper when he left to go to the texans and uh, i remember that i think he was he, and they were really close to keeping him too 
from oh, no, actually they, they did keep him. It was going to be gone the year prior, and they they or as we I guess that that year two thousand one, and they did they just they couldn't keep him. So uh, that was it was a tough blow. I remember that one. It was very tough. Yeah. So after after the after two thousand one, of course they they had the purge, and uh, Marvin Lewis uh, had his famous single year with the Redskins. So even though he didn't leave to be a head coach, he effectively did. They knew he was going to be a head coach. Thought it would happen after two thousand. It didn't. It still didn't happen after two thousand one. But at least he got a high paying job taking some money from Dan Snyder. Yeah. And then and then went off to be head coach of the Bengals, of course, in oh three. Yeah, that, so that was a massive transition on all fronts uh, when you're talking about personnel, uh, talking about the coach, talking about the team. And I, I think it did sting uh, at the time when he left to be defensive coordinator in, in Washington. Obviously, got the, I think he got the assistant head. He got the assistant coach position. So it was it was still technically a raise and a bump up for him. But I think a lot of people were, weren't thrilled. <laughs> because it was Washington as well, right? So it was right. a little bit of salt in the wound. But um, that 2002 team uh, was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I just remember, and Mike Nolan, uh, there was not a whole lot uh, known uh, in terms of what he was going to bring to the table. But, I, kn- I mean, he did reset the 3-4, and I, kn- I remember there was some controversy with that, too, because mm-hmm. especially Ray wasn't... I don't very much, very much. with that switch. So then what was interesting, and I made, I made, I thought about it before this, this joining, joining with you, I was like trying to think through the anecdotes, but one of the anecdotes that's cool for the, the listeners is Kelly Gregg, who turned into one of the best defensive linemen for the Ravens, but was not, it wasn't the thought back then. Right. So mm-hmm. they plugged him in a nose tackle and it just, it, it looked so risky on paper that you have this, 300 pound i think barely undersized yeah they went from you know these two goliaths to him and then you have ray playing behind him so the whole thing just didn't look it it looked like like you said the square peg into the round hole versus the other way around are you playing to your strengths and you have ray who's going to now be unprotected more and have another linebacker next so the it was it was it was an incredibly risky i feel like move and transition Nolan. And, and extremely well done. I mean, because he had, first of all, he had a number of players leaving then. Burnett, Sergusa, Stark, Sharper, Adams, and, and Corey Harris, they all left the team. There are there's others too, but those are those are big ones. And they made room, though, for Ed Reed, <laughs> Adelis Thomas, Kelly Gregg, Weaver, Demps, who was pretty good there for a few years for the Ravens. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, a lot of room was made for talent. That's why I, 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 I always say the good teams aren't afraid to let some good players go. They're not afraid of change. It happens to everybody. I think I left Sharper out of there, too, didn't I? Because he's... They lost. No, I didn't. I, I had him in there. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, they lost, uh, like, every guy, except for Bulwer, Ray, McAllister, uh, McCrary. And, and McCrary. Yeah. And I think McCrary was also on his last leg. So, I mean, it just mm-hmm. really was incredible to see. To your point, they, re- they restocked and didn't expect a whole uh, too much from that 2002 group. Uh, one of the guys that I wanted to call out was Bernardo Harris, who, mm-hmm. um, so that was when they, they, they really, um, 
they, I think Ray, did Ray get hurt that year? I think he got hurt that year. No, too. He was hurt for, for a while. Yeah. And that, yeah. Was, that was part of the reason why that season was so special, but he, he yeah. was off to probably one of his greatest seasons yeah. in early Oh two. And, and he had had, I think it was that Monday night game at Cleveland, or maybe it was a Sunday night game, but it was, but it was a, it was a national television game where he fell on the football field mm-hmm. and he's having one of the great games of his career at that point. They, they put him up 20 to nothing. And I think they held on to win that game narrowly, but I don't, remember what the score was like 23 16 or something maybe yeah exactly they they uh they blew the lead but no that to your point he was having this back-to-back night mm. performance iconic performances like mm. the, the stuff of legends like your butt kisses and your singletaries and all these other guys right like you're seeing it unfold and this is coming after you know a couple of years back he was super bowl mvp mm. <laughs> player of the year so it's not like he's never um looked like that before but i think he took it to another level he did get hurt. Bernardo Harris was uh, a guy they picked up, a veteran from the Packers who mm-hmm. was very solid for them, and, and and I think kind of was another one of these typical like L.J. Fort now today. Like if you pick up, they picked up L.J. Fort. He he, he was able to solidify the defense. Uh, so they did. Ha- they had some nice, I think, veteran additions here and there to supplant uh, and kind of backfill um, some of these players. The teams really have known, the Ravens have really known what they're looking for in terms of a linebacker, in terms of specialized skills. And I've always been impressed with their ability to rebuild that on the fly, both during a season, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of on the fly, or during the offseason, when, whenever they you know can pick up Bart Scott for nothing, can pick up Jameel McLean or Ellerby or other players for nothing. And by the time the, the, the players, those players leave the Ravens, it's like, oh, how can we afford to lose them? And then they go somewhere else, and they're not all that impressive. <laughs> oh, I mean, that's, that's a great point, too. Bart's, I mean, it goes a lot of different directions. The UDFAs are undrafted guys that they plug in, and they just have this incredible uh, trust in their system. And mm-hmm. in that season, too, Bart Scott's another guy. And yeah. All these guys, McLean, uh, I think, you know, McLean. Uh, oh, wait. Oh, yeah. Well, that was later. But, yeah, anyway, they had a pipeline, and they just kept – pumping these guys out and it was incredible, especially in a season where they couldn't fully depend on Ray Lewis. Right. Yeah. It was a, it was a, it was a fun season to watch. I have fond memories of it. And then I have a very unfond memory of them giving up the big drive to Cleveland that, that basically put them out of the playoffs. They did have a slight chance to get it the next week, but if they beat Cleveland, they would have been, you know, in their own hands or destiny in their own hands. Uh, a, a bummer of a thing, but getting back to Mike Nolan there, um, he was another base or dime guy, very little nickel and a little bit like Marvin in that regard, or at least the early Marvin years. But, uh, uh, he did some things that were very interesting, um, with regard to that. He, the, his dime was very much a three safety look. So it's the dime we think of today as being the, 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 the dime they put on the field. And he did, he did have other things he liked to do with, with players like Bart Scott and whatnot, being a third-down linebacker. Um, not tremendously aggressive with the pass rush. Um, and that 2002 team immediately matured in 2003. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because well, it, the, the pass rush part, I was trying to think back, and I, I think he did amp it up a bit more than Marvin. But yeah, like to your point, I don't remember and I don't re- Ball, uh, a heavy dose of blitz action or wild wild west style like rex i mean so he he dialed it up here and there but it was i think very um strategic it was it was um 
situational based. And uh, so, yeah, and I think with Suggs and Bulware, you might not have to do that as much uh, because you've got two incredible edge rushers. So I think he played to the strengths uh, of those guys and got a lot out of them. So, no, I mean, I think that was part of it. And then when you think back to um, some of the other facets was, um, the, the, I think, development uh, of Edgerton Hartwell. So they, they just had the stock. They, all the guys that they drafted, it seemed like, they all played right away. They had to. They had no other um, choice. But the crazy part is that they all played reasonably well as starters, and some of them took it up even more. Obviously, Ed Reed Thugs are some of the best ever, but even your Edgerton Hartwells, Gary Baxters, those guys, Will Demps, like they all were pretty solid starters. Right. I mean, you know, Will Demps, uh, a UDFA that immediately was a starter, uh, was one of the one of the good stories of that era. Um, it's it's a it's a fascinating crew, that's for sure. And and the Nolan era, um, you know, it, 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 it that sharp contrast from what really is one of the worst defenses in Ravens history of the 2000 to the present time was that 2002 team. And, uh, and it was really nice to see them so quickly back on top. Uh, Reed being the probably the biggest single factor of, of that, but uh, you know the health of Ray Lewis and all the other players uh, coming around quickly. Uh, Adelis Thomas, a little bit forgotten from that era, just how much he his um, jump in play between O two and O three and O one and O two, in fact, um, really made him a, uh, a a critical part of that defense. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, he was uh, he started to really take off. Another such another example of someone their pipeline they drafted and developed, but his uh, his opportunity it was it was quicker than maybe it might have been because of the fact they had to plug guys in. So he took advantage of that. I thought Marquis Douglas is another guy that yeah, this thought, he's the O one guy I didn't think of. He's the O the yeah last yeah guy in 01. He, right. So he played a lot in O one I think and rotationally, and then he really took off that thir- three four. Anthony Weaver was part of the three and four. So they, they really actually, it was so interesting. Again, you go from this fourth, four, three group and then the three, four, and then they started mapping these players. Uh, and I think they all fit really well. It was, um, it wasn't, it was a front that I think was a little bit under, um, in, in the grand scheme of things, maybe we underrate, underrate a little bit because obviously Kelly Gregg, you know, he turned into a, a monster, Mm-hmm. And it was tackle. So hundred tackles. What was it? hundred tackles? So something he was he was just so good. Uh but these guys were what were they, Buddy Lee group? <laughs> yeah. I think Billy called them. So that, that was that was the mentality. They they just weren't these it wasn't Casey Hampton. Uh or like these big you know, Ted Washington, Casey Hampton, like you think of these big guys at the time. Uh but this group was so good with their technique and their leverage and their pad level. Yeah, he's, he was really the, kind of a rare uh, one-gap nose tackle kind of player. He's not a, he's not a traditional two-capper, pure zero guy kind of thing like we think of some of these other big names you're talking about, like Hampton and T- Ted Washington, who was around with the NFL for many, many years. Uh, but but it, it, Greg was just a ridiculously 
productive tackler for a defensive lineman. You look at Siragusa or Adams and their tackle totals, they're, they're nowhere near the kind of tackle totals that, that Greg had. Um, and, and that's just, it's a, it's a different kind of, kind of player. And I, you know, people out there who like their two gap noses will always say, but no, he's not, he's got a different role. He's not a two gap. Well, Kelly Gregg could, could handle two gaps a lot with his penetration. He would push people into other gaps. So I just, uh, I loved him as a player. I, I, I love Nada even more, uh, but uh, but I really did did love Greg. Yeah, and again, you have to love the fact that uh, that was something that Nolan really understood. Uh, Nolan uh, really had the foresight on that one, and and give him credit. But Greg was a catalyst up front, and then again, they got the most out of that front, and you wouldn't look at them and, and think that this is this imposing front, but they actually were very productive. They had a good ability to rush the passer, like you said, get penetration, quick penetration, run, a lot of good things. As we as we get closer, we're going to need to go a little faster here because I know we're we're uh, we're working on a little bit of a time limit here. But 2004, uh, the Ravens again with Nolan in his final year. Uh, really, that defense carried that team. Obviously, it had a lot of problems uh, really all over the offense. Uh, Jamal Lewis was not the player he was in 2003. The offensive line was not as good. Just a, a, a whole bevy of problems. But that that secondary was outstanding. Reed had one of his best years uh, and was the was the defensive player of the year of course and then nolan that was the year he really started to ratchet it up with more pass rushes and, and i think that might have been the first year the ravens had 40 percent five plus rushing the quarterback they hadn't they hadn't done it uh to my knowledge i have to go back and check i've got the all the, the the place charted of course but i have to go back and check to see if they ever did it during the lewis era that i'm just forgetting like maybe in 99 or something but he was a he was generally a dial of pressure on just get exactly to the boiling level or kind of boil the frog in terms of the quarterback uh whereas nolan was a little more aggressive but none of them were anything compared to our next guy no not at all <laughs> you want to introduce rex oh yeah so rex uh can you say I me? Mean, I think Rex had that mentality coming back, coming going to his father, Buddy Ryan, who's one of the great defensive minds ever. I think mm-hmm. and just carried that over as I'm gonna. What was it? Pressure breaks pipes, and and Ryan, Buddy Ryan, we we know was the was the was the architect of the Chicago Bears' 46 defense. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about Rex is that. He did so many unconventional things, and that included, I think, bringing the 46 in in bits and pieces to this Ravens defense. They did quite a bit of that and used the bare front, but um, I just think Rex's time here, and you thought about Adelis Thomas for the sake of it, like what he unlocked with him. Everything that we talked about with Nolan, right? I don't want to mm-hmm. discount Nolan. I feel like Nolan's like the perfect example of like, he was the right guy at that time. Then Rex was really the right guy at the next level to take like a in the direction or even Ed Reed, like where, mm-hmm. where, where can we move Ed like every single place? Right. It's just a wild mastermind. Yeah. He, the only way to think of it. Yeah. The best example I can come up with this, and I've talked with this occasionally on the show is that in 2005, the Ravens played 265 snaps with only three defensive backs on the field. Right. Three defensive backs. Now, how do they do that? Well, they effectively moved Adelis Thomas to strong safety. 
Now, that wasn't his stated position. They always called him an outside linebacker or a linebacker or a defensive lineman even sometimes. But what he was really doing is taking that tight end, even if split, without fear down the field. And he was one of the few guys who had the athleticism to do that. The Ravens also had another good coverage asset in Bart Scott, who was just coming into his own in 2005. He played a little bit going back, but Bart Scott played a fair amount as a rookie. Then he didn't play very much at all during 2003. In his mm-hmm. second year, which is a little strange, um, uh, but but he came back as a as a coverage asset in two thousand and five, and and the Ravens really needed him. The, the secondary was all down. I mean, everybody was down. Reed missed a significant amount of time. Uh, Sanders was there playing much more than he probably should have, but uh, but you know, still pretty good. Uh, McAllister and Roll each missed time uh, uh, that season, so uh, very hard for the for that uh, that team to find enough bodies in the secondary and Ryan still found a way to cover for it. That's yeah. That's where the difference was uh, when you're talking about the trans transition, because he um, not three defensive backs is obviously not ideal, but I think he just had this incredible belief in the, in the ability to influence uh, the quarterback with pressure. Right. And mm-hmm. this was also um, for me, Ken uh, battle plans for the sake of it. Like when I was doing battle plans, with Rex, with Rex, I would always think of the the way he would he would uh, his his fronts right, like his his pre snap fronts. Mm-hmm. Now they would morph and change on the fly. Yeah. You know, saw that it, like he'll show an overload. An overload for the listeners is you know you'll have the line two three linebackers, however many linebackers on on one side of the formation, whether it's on the weak side or strong side, and you'll show those guys coming on that side. And then inevitably they, they'll go drop into coverage and they'll come from the opposite side. So that was like a lot of the gamesmanship and, and bluffing the blitz or, or not showing. So yeah. ultimately you just didn't know have any clue what he was doing. And most of the quarterbacks not named Peyton Manning uh, couldn't, couldn't deal with it. Yeah. Manning was, uh, was in a lot of ways, his Achilles heel. Yep. But if, if you look at uh, that, that era, you definitely had, um, I want to go back to the first point you made, which was about uh, the amoeba fronts. You had more pre-snap movement with Ryan than with any other defensive coordinator. I think what the Ravens have adopted more in the in the, with the coaches since is the willingness to show and simulate pressure, but show everybody at the line of scrimmage. Go ahead and show them eight. Let mm-hmm. them figure it out. Um, and, and Ryan was more likely to do these zone blitzes where somebody was coming from level two, but he would also fearlessly drop linemen into level two to yeah. – try and do that more than anybody has even even wink who does it kind of a lot and we saw it on the big play by Clayus campbell the first big play of this last year with the interception that he tipped and humphrey got it against cleveland um you know they just don't do that as much anymore but kelly Gregg would drop into coverage a fair amount and yeah. you know so, so would uh, other defensive linemen yeah not a, not a did it a lot too i mean yeah. saw the picks that he's or he's had a couple picks to his name and, and you're right uh that was the Risk. I mean, again, as a risk taker or gambler, what do you want to call it? He didn't. He didn't really care. Mm-hmm. He was very confident in his players. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong because I'm not. I mean, as much as I go back to the Ravens' history, I don't go as far back to the Bears' '86 <laughs> and '85 defenses. But I think their defense alignment also did some of that, like where they would drop, and Buddy Ryan would have them drop. So that that would, that that was in baked into the core philosophy that anybody could rush and anybody could drop. Right. I mean, it's, you always want the most of that that you can have. 
And realistically, there is a limit. I think Martindale has done a better job probably than Ryan even of figuring out how to do that. But the other thing that is so good that they do so well today, and maybe this is this place where Ryan was a step behind in the evolution or, or he was ahead of the curve for his time. But the, but, the, but the general knowledge of the thing has gone further is taking lateral movement from those linemen is how they can really help you. They can't help you as much dropping to a specific point in a zone. There, they're heavily disadvantaged and they get a crosser. The quarterback knows how to throw against them more easily. But if you move them laterally, especially if they're undercutting a, uh, a slant uh, or a crosser coming from the other side of the field, they have tremendous value. Sometimes they even just have value to hit that player because he's within five yards of the line of scrimmage. Right. But uh, but you definitely have an ability to undercut that player as well. And and uh, and the good ones and and the, the you know the good defensive coordinators can really teach them where to be. Uh, absolutely fantastic at, at making use of that now. Yeah, no, for sure. So he, he had just this, this like the creativity was there. I think. <laughs> All right, let's keep going here. I'm sorry, I, I, I don't want to overdo this in terms of time. To 2006, the Ravens had 60 sacks. Uh, incredibly, they dropped to only 43% blitzes in 2006. So they were doing a lot of that with their secondary, taking their time. Uh, doing A lot of that was uh, not numbers-based. This was Ryan's first deep dive into scheme-based blitzing, which means he, he had a lot of overload blitzes he would bring, but he would still be rushing only four. And they were very successful at getting home with that. And to have weapons like Bart Scott in 2006, who had nine sacks, I think, or nine and a half, and Dallas Thomas, who was over there with a similar total, um, having his best year, uh, really made a lot of the fluidity that we see now today with Judon and Bowser playing together outside linebackers who either one can drop to cover um, and either one can be used to rush from level two or from level one. Yeah, no, exactly. Those guys were super chess pieces uh, and you just, I mean, you still had, you still had Suggs as well. So that's another mm -hmm. chess piece. So you can imagine. Trevor Price. Right. Price on the inside, outside. I mean, it's just the amount of versatility. And it, I think like we keep talking about the, the, um, similarities to now with, with wink and there's a lot of that right so he wants guys that can play three or could be in three or four different spots so that's what rex was able to do with the personnel and, and it's a credit to rex though too because sometimes you might think a player's boxed in to a certain uh love i guess to a certain area territory whatever because it's you know, maybe they are just a two down player or maybe they just only play on rundowns and he, mm -hmm. he unlocked or really expanded, like you said, Bart Scott, I think tremendously in all facets, but even, I mean, as a pass rusher, I think that was like, it was like, he was, he was unstoppable. Yes. He's, he he's, up in a blitz, like he would run over the run, running back or whoever, right. He would get to the spot. Yeah. He's, he had that quickness, particularly in that year in, in, uh, in 06, uh, to cross very effectively. A lot of cross blitzes for the Ravens that year. So uh, if you think of the, think of what a cross blitz is, sometimes it's it's two guys coming from level two, but all it really has to be is one guy coming from level two who crosses a gap or two, and, uh, and that messes up the offensive line in terms of their adjustments to try and get that guy blocked up and the guy at the line of scrimmage who's occupying people. So I, I, I generally uh, don't regard those as stunts. Some people might 
think of them that way, but they're really cross blitzes and, and they, uh, uh, you know, they show up uh, a fair amount of, and, and in the, in the Ryan defense of 06. I, I do think of Ryan as being a heavy user of defensive backs, but he was definitely much less so than Marvin Lewis. He only had 75 snaps of dime in 2006, and they had a certifiably great dime back on that team in Jerome Sapp. Yeah, they did. Uh, he, he's a good, that's a good name when we're thinking about some of those role players or like the, mm-hmm. these, um, you know, supporting players that, that really get lost in the shuffle because of the big names that the Ravens have had in their history. But he's, he was really good that year. Um, and Corey Ivy was very good too. I mm-hmm. think part of that same defense, right? So, I mean, he had, um, again, and this is another example of Corey Ivy's guy that he, he really looked at and he said, all right, well, he can fill that role specific role it could be the nickel i mean having that belief in ivy is incredible yeah and then ivy actually moved to the outside after that when they really needed him 07 right so it was um again a reflection of rex's ability to i think just kind of i think there was some of that belichick aspects of being uh, like i know the, the strengths of this player i'm gonna put him in those positions to succeed but also having the confidence in those players and they paid off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. It could uh, certainly confidence and scheme. I want to jump ahead. I think, I think people know how the 2006 season ended. Not a, not a nice day for any of us. Probably about as depressed as I've ever been about a game of football to lose that game to the Colts. But uh, <laughs> the 2007 defense came back. Uh, a good defensive unit. And, you know, I, I think of the 05 and 07 as being, you know, two really troubled teams in terms of injuries. That 07 defense was the street of dying men in the secondary. They just, everybody went down. Uh, Willie Gaston ended up starting, uh, you know, off the street for the Ravens mm-hmm. uh, for a game. So they, they, they had a lot of trouble. Uh, keeping the defense together and yet the defense remained the stronger of the units by far. And Billick was really losing the clubhouse at that point. Oh yeah. That was a disaster. Um, everything. New England, the loss of New England, the year, I mean, that year New England was going for, they ended up being undefeated and lost the Super Bowl. but that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Or I think, uh, because they not so much that game was the problem. I think it was just the whole um, the aftermath of that game, and then they, they lost the lead, and then they ended up having all those penalties. Mm-hmm. If uh, fans remember that one, uh, yeah, see, I, I think Bill, yeah, he lost the locker room. The, the, the lack of discipline. They were the most penalized team that year in the league. So there was a lot of things there that showed. I think that they needed to go in a different direction. Obviously, so oh uh, wait comes along and the Ravens uh, Rex has his last year with the Ravens. He only was there four years. Uh, it was the best ever year for the Ravens in terms of defensive DeVoa. So if you're looking at the football outsider stat and how they really measures how they're winning individual plays, uh, they were as good as they've ever been, including 2000, 2006, all the great Ravens defenses. Uh, DeVoa says that that one's the best. Uh, Ray Lewis had comments um, about, uh, Rex really being the head coach of that team. He was very outspoken when he left to go to New York to be the head coach that, uh, you know, maybe they got the wrong guy. Yeah, uh, that was an interesting thing to say at that, at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Harbaugh walked into a situation, to his credit, I think, 
mm-hmm. in which you had two very strong coordinators, mm-hmm. guys that could have been head coaches. I mean, I, I know Cam Cameron's a guy that's been, and we're talking about defense. I just want to shift quickly to Cam Cameron. Just his, his, he had a pedigree coming in. Like he mm-hmm. could have been a head coach as well. And I think um, that was there, uh, potentially there. So, so, and then Rex on the other side. So I understood the sentiment. It's just one of those things where, you know, Ray at times would get, I think, say some things that you probably don't, you shouldn't say out to the, to the world or in the, you know, in the media, but um, that, was, that was one of those things where they were very fortunate uh, to have Rex for another year. I know that there was quite a bit of buzz for him to get a head coaching job after 2007. That didn't happen. Uh, this was actually one of my favorite defenses uh, that they've had, um, partly because of the secondary. Now, to your point, um, they still, I think, they had a better secondary than they did in 2007 in terms of like right. health and all that. But if you look at the 2008 secondary, I mean, they got a lot of mileage out of Fabian Washington, who yep. was kind of like just, you know, a good starting cornerback in the league, nothing special. Samari Roll was um, still a good player, not the Samari Roll that he was in his prime. And then they had right. Frank Walker who played a lot. I mean, they, they kind of had a very, um, I'd say like a very, I don't know. It wasn't the secondary. It wasn't like the secondary that we, we know and love today for that sake. Like, well, they, they had Ed Reed. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> they had Ed Reed, of course, who was well, his, his yeah, best year ever. For sure. <laughs> and, and Jim Leonard, they had, they had, they had a good player. Again, I don't want to knock it. They had talent in that secondary, but I think what, what was just cool to watch uh, like Rex orchestrate things with that group. And uh, yeah, one, one of the more, I think he got a lot out of that, that group, in my opinion. They also, I, I agree too, but they, they sat down Chris McAllister, which was a bold move at the time. They sat him down at Miami, played like six dime snaps or some such, but he, but he was off the field. Um, and that, that was pretty much it. He, he really didn't play again as a starter. I don't believe if he did, it was because of injury. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they made that move at that time. I remember, uh, you know, thinking, why, why is this happening? What's, what am I missing? about this that's different because McAllister had a checkered past in terms of 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 his off-field behavior at the Ravens and most notably that 2003 game he missed at San Diego for reasons that have never been fully disclosed I don't believe <laughs> but he was sent home early on the plane do you remember that yeah uh, depending on who you talk to <laughs> he had you <laughs> seen quite a bit out in the night night scene of Baltimore's, you know, illustrious like places to hang out, whether it's Fells or Federal Hill. I, I don't remember which one, Canton. So that's that's not anything I've seen, but it, people have talked about that. You've uh, you've given him a lot of credit, but the, but the, he's well known for having the the designated parking spot at Scores. Okay, well there's <laughs> yeah. that too. So yeah. plenty of stories uh, that I think are they're not made up. But uh, yeah, you're right. I remember that. And then he was um, he was yeah he, he ended up getting benched and then. Everything just happened so immediate, so quickly, mm-hmm. and it was it was I think an indication of how things were going to be different under Harbaugh. Yeah, and so we, and it'd be interesting if that was actually a headbutting moment for Ryan and Harbaugh. But to his credit, I mean Harbaugh didn't say that that screw up Harbaugh took my best player away or anything like that. He's he, he let it happen. He he worked with it, whether he agreed with it or not, which is the right thing to do, and uh, an impressive part. Anyway, uh, you mentioned Jim Leonard. Jim Leonard is the only guy to take the green dot away from Ray Lewis. 
So when Ray Lewis was playing in the 08 playoffs, you can actually see the pictures, but Jim Leonard's got the green dot for those three, three playoff games turned in one of the greatest series of playoff games ever by a Ravens defender. Wally was also taking off the, taking off the green dot. That, that Tennessee game in particular, uh, he, he really was a one man wrecking crew in terms of, of winning that game. Yeah, he was a smart player, savvy, understood. That says all, everything when you're saying that he took the green dot. And then mm-hmm. I think it was reflected in the trust that, that Rex had in him. And obviously, uh, he took Jim with him to, to, to the Jets. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he was he was a, cr- a critical piece. Uh, kind of reminds me of Eric Weddle before Eric Weddle. That's that's like what he mm-hmm. represented, at least. I mean, that Weddle was, was a good player even back then. And more like what he was for that Ravens defense. So uh, we, we mentioned Rex left for the Jets again, the head coaching job immediately took Bart Scott uh, very famously just a few minutes after the the deadline to or the, the, the starting point where you could talk to free agents. He showed up in his, in his uh, SUV to take Bart up to New York for a visit. <laughs> so uh, very quickly took those guys and they both became defensive signal caller for, for a period of time for Rex. The next guy is someone who is largely forgotten and was a, was a, a fair enough defensive coordinator, Greg Madison. Uh, the thing I remember him for is being lukewarm in a lot of categories that he only played 9% diamond quarter snaps. So he's not an extreme. Let's respond to this with a heavy set of defensive backs and try and drop people or even use their flexibility. And he also, uh, only rushed 35.3% five plus in 2009. So it's not like he was a heavy blitzing guy. Although by the way, 35.3 is probably right in the middle of the league somewhere, maybe even above average, but for the Ravens, it's low. That's just it. I remember, um, the blitzes or, and then, and they were very, uh, unsophisticated blitzes. So you went from Rex to to Madison and uh, it's like going from like, I'm trying to think of an analogy like Leonardo DiCaprio and one part, one of the movie. And then the next sequel is like a B level actor, right. Or something like that. And it's just, it was a big come down, but, and then a lot of schemes, but they're very vanilla schemes. And I remember that Patriots playoff game, and right before the game, I think it was right before the game, uh, they had, there were some discussions about the fact that their scheme, their scheme was kind of like predictable. Um, mm-hmm. You could see the, the blitz coming a mile away because they were tipping it. They were just, the, the blitzers would stand there, show blitz, and they would come. And that was about it. So I think um, Ray, I mean, at that point, Ray was pretty much the coordinator, um, had sa- stated that the key would be that they would need to that show that they were coming until five seconds before and then they would come. So there was a little bit of the timing of the blitz and like not necessarily giving it away as, as, as early. And I think they did some, they made some adjustments with Greg and obviously at that point, give him credit, give Greg Madison credit because then he had no ego. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, there was some of that where, I, I mean, I don't, just don't think he was the right, he was okay. Like you said, they got, they got where they got. I don't think it would have changed a whole lot having not having him as the coordinator but he also uh was very underwhelming ultimately yeah the 09 and 10 teams were both very good there's no there's no question about that the 09 team i think was the best of the five-year period despite the fact they only went nine and seven uh, i think was still the best offensive line to be sure and that the ravens have really ever had um and and it's it's a it is a credit that uh you know that they 
they they did what they could there. Uh, Madison, I, I certainly there's nothing that really makes him distinctive. He went back to Michigan, had a good career there uh, for eight more seasons, and he'd been at Notre Dame in Michigan before. So, he, you know, obviously been at some big time programs. Um, there's just nothing wrong with him as a coordinator. It's not like the Ravens lost a lot with him. But but you're right that that he that you know there were things said. Um, people missed Rex obviously, and really liked playing in his system more yeah that's just it i think madison held the fort or or kept it going right but there wasn't anything more to it he kind of did what he could and uh ultimately i think let's be honest i think this was you know one of those things where harbaugh kind of settled and didn't push the envelope with with this particular dc it's interesting because Harbaugh later is really is his imprints are all over the uh, the DC OC choices that are made, um, but 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 I would agree that I'm 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 not convinced uh, this is at the same level. There, it is a Michigan guy, so maybe uh, maybe that connection was there, but uh, but it yeah. was what it was. Well, thanks, Dev. That's some great stuff. And I realize this was probably going to run too long and, and it's been a great walk down memory lane. I don't want to make this shorter, but let's make sure we uh, get back tomorrow night for the last three defensive coordinators, Chuck Pagano, Dean Pease, and of course, Wink Martindale. Lots of stuff to say about those three. And uh, it's been great having you on, Dev. We'll talk to you tomorrow night. <laughs> This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.